Bow us our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous privilege, this honor of gathering together in the unity of faith, Father, a faith that you've provided by grace to each one of us. From eternity past, you've ordained this morning for us. We are so very grateful to have this place of peace and fellowship in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a way to rejoice. What a way to get our spiritual bellies filled. Father, we're so grateful for all that you continue to do for us in time as you sanctify us, just like you've promised. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that can't be with us here this morning for a multitude of reasons. And we pray also for those that are still lost, that we might evangelize them before it's too late. Father, we're most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to make a morning like this a reality for each one of us to rejoice in. We just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, a real fantastic series that we're embarking on uh, titled The Deceitfulness of Sin. Um, And again, as I said before class, I think this particular series is uh, imperative. And um, it makes me sad that it's apparently not taught uh, as much as maybe even it used to be taught 50 or 100 years ago. Um, And I think the funny thing is, it's in the title itself, The Deceitfulness of Sin. Well, if sin wants to sort of fly under the radar, what's it going to do? It's going to deceive Christian churches even not to teach about it. You know what I'm getting at? So it's kind of like it speaks to itself in a way. But nonetheless, let's uh, quickly review a little side note from Thursday's class before we pick up where we left off with the deceitfulness of sin, part one. And this was uh, precipitated from our lesson or our lessons um, last week. Um, The topic of judgment came up. Um, And so the Spirit said a little bit about it on Thursday evening to kick off class. Uh, We're going to review that here this morning with a little more color, uh, just so you get it right, because I think a lot of people are, are goofy on the topic of judgment. And yes, I use the old British spelling for judgment, so don't send me any emails. You shouldn't have an E in there. I already checked. (laughs) On judgment, there's nothing wrong with righteously judging right from wrong. Nothing wrong with that. We do it all the time. Our judgment translates into evil when we cast a sentence upon another, suggesting punishment even. We don't have that right to cast uh, a punishment, unless we're in the position of authority, like a parent, of course, or a boss or something like that, where you have to uh, you know, criticize somebody. That's not in view either. We're talking about spiritual matters. So our judgment translates into evil when we cross a line in the sand, when we cross over and become judge and jury, so to speak. Uh, this is what the Lord has to say on that. Romans 12, 19, up here on the board. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, 
Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He says, this is my business, to dole out punishment or retribution, if you would, because I'm the one that's offended. I'm the offended party here, so I don't need an agency like you uh, who's supposed to be, you know, uh, bringing the gospel out, judging individuals, uh, my creatures, and then passing um, some kind of sentence on them. He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. But if we look at that verse very closely, there has to be something to take revenge for, right? So what's implied? The Bible implies that we will see evil in this world, right? And we will judge it rightly. He's just saying, don't do my business for me. You're going to see it. You're going to see evil in this world. That's okay. I kind of want you to see evil in this world so that way you can avoid it and avoid jumping in a ship with, and become a ship of fools, etc., etc. I want you to be able to judge things rightly. I just don't want you to pass judgment in the sense that you're passing a punishment on someone. That's my business. So the Bible implies that we'll, we will see evil in this world and we will judge it rightly. However, the warning is to sort of leave it at that. Some people will use certain passages of Scripture to try to prove that we can never judge anything or anyone, even if it's done righteously. And that's a lie. That's a lie. To say we cannot judge another person righteously is a lie. It's also, if you think about it, very naive in the most righteous sense of that word. In fact, if you truly seek to understand any passage of Holy Scripture, what has the Spirit taught us to do? Read the Bible in context. And so I'm going to take you to a passage of Scripture that I believe has been perverted. For in people that say don't, you can never judge anyone in any way, shape, or form will use this passage as sort of their linchpin. But look at the point on the board. You have to read every passage in context. In context. What I've learned, for what it's worth, the Bible really isn't that complicated. We're not supposed to slice it and dice it up in such a way that we make doctrines up. We form other opinions beyond the one that's just face value, the one that's just clearly stated. This wisdom cannot be overstated. Read the Bible in context. This cannot be overstated, seriously. When it comes to passages on judging, it is imperative that we read for context. Now, go to Romans 2.1. I want to point something out to you. Maybe some of you know this already. Maybe some of you don't. All I know is I've been on both sides of that fence. Romans 2.1. This is a favorite of those who propose that we can never judge another person whatsoever. It's almost a form of perverted PC, you know, political correctness. But anyways, Romans 2.1 Therefore, you have no excuse. Now read for context. 
Therefore, you have no excuse. So there's an audience in view. You have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. Now, what is he talking about? Is he talking about judgment? No. What's the excuse pointing to? We're going to see this in context. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. You see the context? This is not about not judging somebody. It's about judging rightly and then avoiding the same judgment in your own life. It's about using a righteous standard to say, that's wrong, and the same thing's wrong in your own life. It never says you cannot judge rightly. It says, matter of fact, you are judging rightly, but you're condemning yourself because you're judging rightly, so why don't you turn the standard of measure upon yourself? That's what this passage talks about. It doesn't say you can't judge another person. It says just the opposite. It says, go ahead and judge rightly, but judge every person rightly, even the one in the mirror. That's what this is saying. There's a lot of people who are ignorant about Holy Scripture who do not take things in context, who will take it out of context. And so you see, you can't judge anyone. So you have no excuse, everyone who you pass a judgment, and they stop right there. No, you've got to read for context. What's Paul writing about here? Up here on the board, I'll help you. The context of Romans 2.1, Paul wasn't saying that judging was wrong. He was simply pointing out that if his audience were to judge rightly, they'd have to judge themselves rightly in integrity. In context, this would be an indictment since they were practicing the same things they were judging others for. That's the context, and that's what judging is being called out. That's the kind of judging that's being called out, and that's the nature of this passage. Again, Paul wasn't saying that judging was wrong. He was simply pointing out that if his audience were to judge rightly, they'd have to judge themselves rightly in integrity. In context, this would be an indictment since they were practicing the same things they were judging others for. Why do I bring this up here? Because that is what the context of the passage reveals to us. I believe many people have in the past, myself included. I'll be honest. I believe many people in the past, myself included, have wrongly interpreted this passage as proposing we never have the right to judge anyone ever in any circumstance. Almost like a roadblock. Oh, don't even think about judging another person. That's out of context. That's not even what the passage is trying to convey. Verse 1 again. Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for or because in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Up here on the board. Practice from prasso in the present active indicative, which refers to habit or lifestyle. He's saying, you do the same things. <laughs> I'm not saying you're judging wrongly, but you do the same thing. The active voice, again, means that the subject of the verb is responsible for the action. So in context, what Paul was saying is that his audience was essentially under the judgment they were rightly accusing others of being under. They just weren't admitting it for themselves. 
He was essentially saying, you've got a good mirror, now look into it yourself. You got, I'm not saying that what you're seeing is wrong. What I'm saying is you don't see it in yourself. Look at verse 2. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. In other words, everyone. Not just the ones you're pointing to, but how about you? You're practicing the same things. But do you suppose, and then he goes on, but do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same as yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render favorable or unfavorable sentence to each person according to his deeds. Remember, God's the one who doles out such punishment. That's not our job. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. Again, Paul never proposes that judging is wrong for his audience, does he? He doesn't. That's not what he's saying. He says, you have no excuse. Let's, let's suppose that you're right, in other words. And if you are, then you're just as guilty because you, Prasso, practice the same things. And we know that God's judgment falls on everyone who practices such things. Not just the one you're pointing to, but you too. Up here on the, point, up here on the board, on Romans 2, 1 to 8, the whole passage the point Paul is making is that his audience was hypocritical. Rightly judging others while refusing to judge themselves by the same standard, the one that God uses impartially for all. That's, all this con that's what the context reads. That's the value of reading eight verses instead of half of the first one. I mean, if you do that, if you cherry-pick verses and parts of verses. This is one of the dangers, and I've taught you this. It's why I've almost 99% of the time uh, stopped using word studies. It's because people, the danger of taking things like a word study is that you can take things completely out of context. That's a very, very dangerous thing. You have to be extremely disciplined to even do a well orchestrated doctrinal study on your own. Extremely well-disciplined. Because the, 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 the error is that you take things out of context. And you say, see, the word's here, it's there, it's there, it's there, and there. Well, I can say I love my dog Sophie, and I can tell you I love you. Are those the same things? It's the same word, right? What, it, completely different context. One's an animal, one's a worse animal. I'm just kidding. <laughs> see, I'm just see if you're paying attention. <laughs> one's a beast, one's a worse beast. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? That's the danger. That's why you need... Look, I'm not trying to pump up the, this spiritual gift, but that's one of the reasons why you have a shepherd. Because I've been gifted to be disciplined to do these things on your behalf. To save you the trouble, to keep you out of the thicket. 
The point Paul is making is that his audience was hypocritical, rightly judging others while refusing to judge themselves by the same standard, the one that God uses impartially for all. I hope you see the context of this passage very clearly. It's about calling out hypocrites. Hypocrites may actually judge circumstances rightly. It doesn't say that they don't judge something rightly. However, they don't apply the same set of standards to themselves. That's the nature of a hypocrite. You know who despised this kind of thing? Jesus, up here on the board, Luke eleven forty six. But he said, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Jesus despised hypocrites. <clears throat> despised it. And every single person in this room is a hypocrite. I guarantee you that. Scott had me laughing. I was laughing out loud. He's like, have you ever noticed? This was on Tuesday. Have you ever noticed how, like, on Tuesday, we're ignorant. We don't know anything. On Wednesday, we have an aha moment. And then on Thursday, we're judging everybody else in the world because they don't have, they're still on Tuesday. What's wrong with you people? <laughs> I was laughing. I was like, this is exactly what we do. We're unbelievable. We're unbelievable. So everybody here is a hypocrite to some degree. So don't think that it's just pointing fingers to the lawyers now. But nonetheless, the Lord despises hypocrisy. Again, it's hypocritical judging that the Bible has the real problem with. However, the world, now listen up, the world and this has infiltrated Christendom, I'm convinced of it, the world has made this unrighteous type of judging synonymous with righteous judging. In other words, any kind of judging is wrong. Don't judge me, you know that old thing. Don't judge me, you can't judge me. The world has made this unrighteous type of judging synonymous with righteous judging, and the result is that people are afraid to judge others in any way, shape, or form. And those who consistently do unrighteous deeds, you know what they do? They capitalize on it. They say, you're a Christian. You can't judge me. Don't judge me. You're supposed to have mercy. You're supposed to be tolerant. I can judge rightly. You're a jackass. And all you do is walk through this world and leave a wake. And you hurt people and you cut gashes in people. And you say, don't judge me. Oh, you're damn right I'm going to judge you. I'm going to judge you rightly. I'm not going to pass a judgment. That's between you and the Lord. I'm going to tell you that you better be careful because God is not mocked. And whatever a man sows, that he will reap. But I'm not the one that's going to dole out that punishment. Unless you try to affect me and my family, then there's going to be a little punishment involving my fist. That's totally ungodly. Scratch that from the record. <laughs> Call me a sinner. But it's going to happen. I'm just saying. <laughs> I have, I have my tolerance for entitled brats is very low at this point. I'm only 49. I can't imagine 59, 69. I'm going to be like intolerable myself. I just hate it. I'm tired of people telling me what I'm supposed to be in Christ Jesus. I'm tired of being, I'm tired of, I'm trying to, I'm tired of the world trying to put me on my heels because I'm a Christian. And then using perverted doctrines that other morons from pulpits that shouldn't even be standing behind pulpits, some of them women, 
a, a peddling about judging, how judging's wrong. Oh, don't judge that homosexual. I'm not judging them. I'm saying the Bible says it's wrong. I'm not judging. I don't say I don't love them. Nothing. That's never come out. I'm not saying I'm the one doling out the punishment. But it's wrong. I, hey, what do you want me to say? Don't judge them. I'm not judging. I'm judging what's wrong. You see what I'm saying? And everybody's all twisted. And so people are afraid. And then the other side of the fence capitalizes on it. Because now if you're afraid to judge rightly, anybody who's consistently doing unrighteous things says, I can do whatever the hell I want then. And you can't say a thing because you're a Christian. And I've pigeonholed you into this perverted box that's actually not even Christianity. But so many so-called Christians are so twisted on it, half of them aren't even saved in my opinion, that the world takes it for granted that that's the definition that we should adopt ourselves. And I say, no, I reject it. I'm going to judge rightly. I'm going to judge by the word of God. I'm going to love you, but I'm going to tell you this is, this is wrong. End of story. Arguably, one of the ugliest cases of this situation is between parents and their children nowadays. This false teaching has progressed to the point where kids are essentially telling their parents to back off. It's ridiculous. You can't judge me. I have rights. No, you don't. You have the right to live in my house. That's about it. And live, I'm using, you know. <laughs> I'll say this before we move on. Not only is judging when done righteously something good, the fact is that God wants us to judge ourselves and even others when the time calls for it, when we have all the facts. He wants us to do that thing. I think the word judge has been perverted by Christians who cling to words such as grace and mercy and love in the absence of justice. That's when it become, tolerance becomes something it's not supposed to be. They cling to you know, grace, mercy, and love. In the absence of justice, they have a lopsided God. I have a whole chapter dedicated to this issue in my book titled Covert Arrogance, if you're interested. Some of you couldn't read it before. I've had several people tell me, you know, I just I couldn't read it before. It was like ahead of its time in my soul. And now they've read it and they're like, that's blowed my mind. There's a whole chapter dedicated to this thing about judging and mercy and how the other side of the fence uses it almost as a weapon against a weak believer. Covert arrogance. Look it up. It's on the website. God has perfect integrity, and through the Word of God, His Spirit imparts some of it to us so we can make good decisions. This is why He's also given us a good conscience that is edified by the truth found in the Word. Here's a balance statement for you up here on the board. We are not to become, quote, judge and jury over spiritually private matters, supposing this or that punishment fits the crime. For example, we cannot judge another's heart, only their actions. I can never say to you, I know why you did that. I can never want to, I can never, I can have my, you know, I might be able to estimate my own soul. But at the end of the day, it's really not for me to say. 
I can never say and judge another person's heart. I can certainly judge facts, though. I can certainly judge actions. Say, you know, it was wrong that you punched me in the face. Just saying. Even in your mind. (laughs) Here's an oversimplification that might help. Someone sees me cross the road. That's all they see. They say, I saw you cross the road. That's a righteous judgment, is it not? I did. I crossed the road. Okay. Maybe they say, I saw you cross the road because you wanted to buy some ice cream at the store. That's an unrighteous judgment because they have no idea what my motivation for crossing the road was. None. They may think they know, but they don't. Now, the worst scenario. I saw you cross the road for ice cream, and since you're already on doctor's orders not to eat fatty foods, you should be stricken with heart disease for not taking care of the temple of God. Right? Let's call this one compounded unrighteous judgment since there are multiple unrighteous judgments being cast my way. You get the point. The only one that was righteous is, you saw me cross the road. Now, if you saw me cross the road and punch somebody in the face, you might say, hey, you kind of, you know. But all that other garbage, you have no idea why I crossed the road. And then for you to cast a judgment based on some other judgment, well, that's just a web of ridiculousness. And you know who suffers? Not me. You. You. Again, judging is good as long as it is righteous. We learn what this simple statement means by learning what righteousness actually is as described by the Word of God. In other words, we need that standard in our souls. We need that standard. And that's part of what you know spiritual maturity looks like. We get more of the standard, more of the fullness of Christ. We get edified, we get built up, we, have, we understand His commands, we understand what He's trying to convey to us, we understand the will of God. When we have the standard, then we're able to judge righteously. That's why, it's another pet peeve, I'm going to take 30 seconds to go into it. I cannot, I'm so tired of listening to so-called Christians tell me about God who have barely if ever, even open their Bible. Don't talk to me about God and His sovereignty and His righteousness and His justice and His integrity. Don't tell me about the commands of God if you've never read them. Don't argue with me about something like homosexuality if you don't open your Bible. I don't care what your pathetic little disgusting heart thinks about that subject or any other subject because you are... Uh, ignorant, you're an ignoramus, and you have no right to come back at a, someone like me who's actually has holy scripture imparted to their soul and knows what the Bible has to say about certain sins. Don't argue from the world's perspective. Don't tell me that I got to accept transgenderism 
Don't tell me I've got to accept that, because God doesn't. Don't tell me that God's a liar and He made a mistake when He created somebody, a man. He made a mistake. Louis was really supposed to be Louise. God doesn't make any mistakes last time I checked. So don't tell me to accept that. Because you feel like you're hurting someone's feelings. Wait a minute, where's God in that equation? That's because they don't know God. Do you get, get what I'm saying? Was that more than 30 seconds? All I'm saying is, if we want to become righteous judgers, and I'm okay with using that term because that's what we're going to be, then we just have to have the standard. And you get the standard right here. Don't get your standard anywhere else than from here. Don't get your standard from the world because those standards are cockeyed. And they change, by the way. Okay, all that said, that was just that one little thing on judging. And I think people have it messed up in their soul. And I'm tired of seeing good people like yourselves afraid of actually judging rightly and, and being pinned down and put on your heels because some moron has convinced you that you have no right because, you know, you're a Christian and you're supposed to be soft and pliable and tolerant and all this garbage, and merciful, and loving. You know, I am all those things, but I actually say that God says this about this thing, and that's the way it is. Don't, I'm tired of watching that happen in Christendom. It makes, it makes Christ look weak. All right, with that said, the deceitfulness of sin. And by the way, all of that is really part of the deceitfulness of sin. It's just a very practical example of how the deceitfulness of sin has infiltrated even Christendom. Because sin says, don't judge me, no matter what. I don't like to be judged. That's in that book, Covert Arrogance. That's one of the main things. Anyways, the deceitfulness of sin. That's our series title. As we're going to continue to see in Holy Scripture, sin is not to be thought of as merely some result, let me say this again because I want to make sure you're listening, sin is not to be thought of as merely some result we can point to. This goes out to all the religious folks, especially you ex-Catholics. Sin is not to be thought of as merely some result that we can point to. Like, oh, I sinned when I got drunk. Is that a sin? Yeah. Or I sinned when I disrespected my parents, or whatever. In such cases, if we pigeonhole it that way, we are only accounting for part of the nature of sin. Nature is actually complex. Oh, excuse me, sin is actually complex. This is in accordance with what I've been saying from behind this pulpit for years now that our intended relationship with God is actually a very simple one. Um, consider Adam and Eve before the fall in the garden. Consider Adam and Eve before the fall in the garden. Life was simple. It truly was. It was simple. There was no real complexity. 
All the complexity you feel in your soul, all the turmoil, the anxiety is a result, what we see in this world, that's a result of sin. That's the fruit of sin. The fruit of the Spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control, Galatians 2, or 5, 22, 23, those things, that's the fruit of the Spirit. Peace. Not chaos, not complexity. Peace. Nice and simple. That was before the fall. That's the picture of man's relationship with God, his own existence before the fall, before sin infected him. So consider Adam and Eve before the fall in the garden. Life was simple, divine, we might say. Why? Because the relationship between God and man hadn't been broken yet. It hadn't been complicated I mean, you might, in a very loose way, consider your own relationships. When you first meet somebody and there's not a whole lot of, you know, data, like, oh, you know, I love you, this kind of a thing. And then all of a sudden data comes in, right? Because all of a sudden you start seeing the flesh of this one, and this one starts seeing the flesh. And all of a sudden things start getting complicated. Why? Because of sin. Yeah. Anyways, back in the garden before the fall, the relationship between God and man hadn't been broken yet. It hadn't been complicated. Life was simple. Obedience was a matter of fact. Righteousness pervaded every aspect of man's existence. And above all, God's unadulterated love was shown upon mankind without disruption. Without anything blurring our vision, it was just perfect. It was just perfect. It was very simple. This is why when I think about heaven, the closest depiction we actually have of it is in the garden before the fall. There's an expression used in most theological circles worth introducing here because for the most part it is used in the Bible, not in its title form, so to speak. It's what describes the introduction of sin in the garden at the fall. While sin is the, let's call it, the active agent, if you would, the, the thing, it's the total depravity of man that really describes the effects of sin on man. And so we're going to use that as well in this series. You might hear me say this uh, quite a bit, the total depravity of man or the depravity of man. If I say the depravity of man, I mean the total depravity of man. And it really describes the effects of sin on man. A good book, if you're ever interested in delving into this topic in great detail, is titled The Total Depravity of Man by A.W. Pink, Arthur Pink. Um, I'm reading it again uh, on my Kindle. But anyways, it costs 99 cents. The Total Depravity of Man. I'll warn you, it's quite involved. Most of you, I mean, I, I, anyways. It, it is, if you're not up for a theological treatise on something, just don't even bother, honestly. It's really not a necessary read, but if you're ever feeling up to reading a fine discourse on the topic, Mr. Pink's is among the best. With that said, let me give you a couple of working definitions that we'll be using for this series up here on the board. And I'm just seeding this conversation, you see. We're just 
What are, what's the Spirit going to teach us here? Because if you start talking about sin, I mean, you can go in a bazillion different directions. But this series is titled The Deceitfulness of Sin. So we're going to stay focused on how sin itself deceives us. We'll get to the practical stuff later. How does it work? First, the total depravity of man describes the pervasive corruption and pollution of sin passed down from Adam. Its effects are devastating. Devastating to man. That's the key word here. The effects of sin are devastating. Death wasn't even an issue until sin came on the scene. Dying thou shalt die, right? Mut to mut. You shall die, he said. Dying you shall die. You'll die spiritually and physically. If you disobey me, if sin comes on the scene, because sin is the agency of death itself. So the effects of sin devastating to man. And because they're devastating, we're totally depraved. Without any hope. This, this just puts us in that place where I got goosebumps right now, where I, I feel like crying, I feel like rejoicing, because part of me is like, I can't believe how wretched I am, and then part of me is like, I cannot believe he saved me. And it's like a flood, right? It's like, oh my word, I'm so decrepit and hard, you know, just base evil in my own nature and he saved that thing he saved me and he saved you but we need to understand right out of the gate the total depravity of man it describes the pervasive corruption and pollution of sin passed down from Adam its effects are devastating to man there are three key areas where the total depravity of man impact us up here on the board Depravity born of sin affects every aspect of man. Every aspect of us, of our existence. Number two, it renders every man unable to please God. We cannot please God on our own without His help. And three, it's universal, affecting every man ever born. Save Jesus, of course. It's universal, affecting every man. So depravity born of sin affects every aspect of man, renders every man unable to please God, is universal, affecting every man ever born. It's devastating. You gotta, it was a cataclysmic event in the garden at the fall. Awful. Devastating. Perfect, simple fellowship with the holy God of the universe, and then devastation. So upon these two simple principles, the last two slides, in other words, we will be able to effectively communicate about sin in such a way that we won't inadvertently pigeonhole it, like some religions do. You know, it's only what I do if I take this and throw it at Joey's head. Right? <laughs> kind of a sin. I'm just going to go out there and say that. But if that's my, if that's my, <laughs> Joey's like, yeah, Dad, what's wrong with you? 
If, I, if, if that's my whole conception of sin, just an action that I've taken, you know, like a thing I can point to, I'm missing the nature of sin. I'm missing the pervasiveness of sin. And you know who's laughing? Satan. Satan's laughing. Because I'm not giving sin due emphasis. I'm not calling out sin for what it really is. Sin's much bigger than just a single act of disobedience. And that's what we have to start thinking about. We talk about the depravity of man. We're talking about things far beyond personal sins. But see, doesn't that just... See, this is where it gets uncomfortable for people that have been playing a religious game. They kind of like that definition of sin because all they have to do is just point to this little list. You know, I wrote a blog called The List anyways. All they, all they have to do is point to these little lists. See, I used to do this, now I don't. On my list, I cross it off. Don't do this. Okay, I didn't do it today. Cross it off. No, no, that's that religious tact that people like to take because they like to try to put God in a box and they like to kind of control everything. <laughs> no, we need to broaden this conversation and realize the devastation that sin has caused in mankind. So, we don't want to pigeonhole sin or the depravity born of sin. As a side note, please note that just because every man is born totally depraved, this is a true side note, by the way, so keep where you're at in your head. Just because every man is born totally depraved, being born in sin, as the Bible says, this does not mean that an unbeliever cannot perform some type of relative good in this world. For example, now I, I, wanna, I really, really want you to think about this stuff. It's not going to be the mainstay of our study, but I want you to, I'm introducing this for a reason. Maybe the Spirit just wants you to think about it on your own time so you don't get lopsided in the other direction. You said it's devastating. You said it's, um, it's, it affects every person. It's, you know, man can't please God, blah, blah, blah. Well, let's just ask ourselves fair questions here. Do we have the right to say that an unbeliever parent doesn't love their children? Do we? May it never be. I'm not going to go, I'm, not, I'm never going to do that thing. Even as a saved individual and say, you're an unbeliever? You, you, you don't even know how to love your kids. May it never be. Love is good, right? Indeed it is. Certainly when compared to the opposite, which is hate, do we have the right to say that an unbeliever that helps an old lady in need isn't doing some kind of good? Again, may it never be. Or do we have the right to say that an unbelieving child that is disobedient, or excuse me, is very obedient to his or her parents isn't doing some good? Again, may it never be. I'm not going to make those statements. While it is absolutely critical that we get the nature of sin and the total depravity of man nailed down, what we don't want to do in the process is make it something that it is actually not. We have a bad habit of swinging pendulums all the way over here. And we hear something that goes all the other side. And it goes all the way over here. Think of sin like a pollutant. 
I can pour some smoke into this room right now and you can still breathe, right? Unless it's too much and then you choke out. But let's just say I pour some smoke, right? Smoke goes everywhere. We got fans on, kind of, right? The smoke's going to go everywhere. It may irritate your lungs. Every area, every corner of this room is now polluted, correct? But yet you can still breathe. It's the same with sin. We all breathe it in, but we still breathe, if that makes sense. Even Jesus stated that evil people can do relative good things. Go to Matthew 7.11. Matthew 7.11. And I use the word relative. I'm not going to get into this too far. I just don't want you to become like crazy about this either. We can only take what the Bible gives us. And that's where it ends for us. Matthew 7.11 says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? Okay, you who are evil, know how to give good gifts. Even Jesus stated that evil people can do relative good things. I think it's just easier sometimes to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but it's just not godly to do so. And then we wonder why Christianity is increasingly misunderstood by those we're trying to evangelize. Some of us approach unbelievers with this air about us that conveys, well, since you're an unbeliever, you're essentially a big pile of cow dung. You can't love your kids you can't do anything good. You do nothing good. Because, oh, you were born in sin. And you smack him upside the head with the Bible. <laughs> Does that sound like Jesus? Nope. Nope. Not at all. So we have to get this right. We have to get us, we have to, we have to allow the Spirit to extract us from years, for some of you, years of religion. Religions that lied to you and said the only aspect of sin you should focus on is what we might call in theology personal sins, where I throw something at Joey's head, and that's it. And that's, that's the, that's the, those are the boundaries of sin. That sin doesn't have a nature. Sin hasn't, isn't a disease. It's just the result of something else, of me being tempted and losing some... War, you know, the little guy on this shoulder and the little guy, do it, don't do it, do it, don't. And I screwed up and I, I, I gave it to the, the evil guy and I threw it at Joey and now I sinned. And that's the extent of sin. Uh-uh. Nope. Sin is much, much bigger. It would like to deceive you. It would like for you to think that it's not bigger than what it is. It would like for you to pigeonhole it. Because now it can, it can control you. Sin now has the ability to deceive you. In other words, if it can fly under the radar. Do you understand what I'm saying? If your definition of sin itself is limited, there's all this other space that it can operate in. That's good for sin. That's how the father of lies lies to us. That's how sin itself lies to us. That's how we have the deception of sin. The deceitfulness of sin. That's the genesis of this study, by the way. 
we're going to try to we're going to try to look at all these other areas where sin has been deceiving us even with the definition of sin itself again i think it's easier sometimes just to throw the baby out with the bathwater but it's just not godly to do so we approach unbelievers the wrong way. We suppose wrong things even. Just food for thought. Um, let's get back to our primary pair of principles up here on the board. Again, the total depravity of man describes the pervasive corruption and pollution of sin passed down from Adam. Its effects are devastating to man. Devastating. No stone left unturned, in other words. Depravity of, born of sin, one, affects every aspect of man, renders every man unable to please God, is universal, affecting every man ever born. That's the effect of sin. Before we advance any further on our study, the deceitfulness of sin, I want you to ponder what you see here. I want you to ponder it. What do you see? I want you to think about the true nature of sin itself. And I want you to stop thinking about sin as having only one facet to it. For the Bible treats sin as multifaceted. Sin's a big word in the Bible. It's, it's a, um, let's face it, uh, without the presence of sin, we wouldn't even need God's salvation plan. The whole, the whole reason behind God's salvation plan is that sin is in the world, that sin was introduced. So if you think about sin, it really is, besides salvation from sin, it really is the cause of all this. Everything was fine before the fall, before sin entered the scene, everything was fine. So you see, sin is that disease where a bunch of like doctors look at it and say, well, how do we... How do we deal with this thing? How do we treat this disease? God says, I'll save you from this disease. And for all of you, I hope, He has. But it's still going to affect you because you have this disgusting body that you drag around with. I know some of you are like, oh my God, how dare you do that? I worked three hours on my hair this morning, and I painted my nails, and you're saying I'm disgusting. You are kind of, I mean, your body's gross. It's filled with sin. Every cell. Yeah, I know. Good morning, Sunday. I want you to think about the true nature of sin itself, and I want you to stop thinking about sin as having only one facet to it, because sin, the Bible treats sin as multifaceted, up here on the board. Here's a very simple definition that we can get started with for sin. Sin is any lack of conformity to God's will, whether expressed actively or passively. The easiest way to look at this, God says, I'm holy, I do things this way, and to whatever degree you don't do things my way, it's sinful. The perfect example, the starting example is in the garden. I say, you can eat from any tree, just not this one. Serpent comes in, did he really say... We would conform it, and then we were non-conformant. 
we were perfect, and we enjoyed we enjoyed all the righteousness, the the uh, the good things about being righteous, and sweet fellowship with God, unadulterated love. We enjoyed all those things, and then we decided to be nonconformists, with a little help from the serpent, of course, who had already fallen, and that's where it all started. That is, by definition, the sin, nonconformity to God's will. Whatever that will is, that's why we read our Bibles, right? Because all of us are living in sin in ways we don't even know about yet. Sometimes you come to class and you're like, I didn't even know that was a sin. I've been doing that my whole life. It was because it was against the will of God. You were doing it passively. You were doing it unknowingly. But still, it's against the will of God. And because you have a sin nature that deceives you, you didn't even know. You didn't even know. But this is a good working definition for sin. Anything against the will of God. Anything nonconformant to God's will. Fair enough. Nice and simple. Pretty much the way it started. It's pretty much the way it's been ever since the fall. Whenever we choose against an ordinance of God, we're nonconformant. All good things are from Him. He contains all good things, so all the blessings, all that kind of stuff, as I've been teaching on obedience, have to do with being in conformance with His will. So if you want to be blessed in your life, you abide, you obey. That's the value. In, in humility, you obey. You go to Him. You don't do like a lot of Christians suppose He does, even at salvation. He's, he's such a begging, weak God that He comes to you. Uh-uh. He crosses that chasm to draw you to himself. He never says he crosses the chasm and then abides in you. He's trying to get you to him. Anyways, sin is any lack of conformity to God's will, whether expressed actively or passively. You might hear this expressed in a variety of ways, but the basic truth is as you see it on the board. For example... Some might refer to the literal translation of the Greek word hamatia, which means to miss the mark. Although such literal knowledge is certainly useful, in context it really means the same thing as you see on the board. God says, here I am. Jesus said, follow me. All's good. I don't feel like it. I'm in a mood. Right? My wife's a... My husband's... Right? I'm not doing this. Wife's like, I don't feel like obeying today, so I'm not. (laughs) Husband's like, I don't feel like obeying God, so I'm not. I know I should pay the electric bill, but I really want some brewskis. I don't feel like obeying. (laughs) Do you all get it? That's all it takes to sin. Any nonconformance to God's will. So, if we explore this definition just a little bit, in context to our relationship with the Holy God of the universe, what we realize is that sin is really the root cause of anything opposed to God's will. Again, if we explore this definition in context to our relationship with the Holy God of the universe, because that's what this is all about. 
our relationship was broken in the garden. We had a perfect relationship with the holy God of the universe. It was amazing. It will be amazing in heaven as well. But we're not there. We had a perfect relationship with the holy God of the universe, and it was broken. And what we realize is that sin is really the root cause of anything opposed to God's will. That that is the essence of sin. Anything opposed to God's will. When we begin understanding the nature of sin this way, we begin to realize what the Bible means when it refers to the sinfulness in mankind. Is the sinfulness in mankind the simple fact that I threw something at Joey? No, that's fruit of it, but that's not the essence of sin. That's fruit of it. But there's a root, you see. Just like a tree has a root system, there's a root system called sin. So sin is multifaceted. Religion only wants you to pay attention to the, you know, the bad fruit and say, oh, if you can cut that off, you're good. No, because your heart's still bad. The root system's still bad. We've got to get to the root system here. We've got to understand what is sin and what are we dealing with here? What happened at the fall in the garden? Why is it so pervasive? That's what we've got to get to. Because when we understand that part of the equation, then we can understand how we're being deceived by it. Then we can understand how we're being deceived by it. How we're manipulated by it. How it manipulates us from without and us from within. That's the deceitfulness of sin. So, when we begin understanding such things, the nature of sin this way, we begin to realize what the Bible means when it refers to sinfulness in mankind, or when we refer to, quote, sinners, or, you know, the sons of disobedience, or whatever the phrase may be. These are conditions that befall man. These are conditions, not just descriptions, of a list of sins a person has committed. You know, you know what I'm saying? You're not a sinner just because you have five things that you can point to that were sins. You were a sinner the day you were born, and you didn't do anything. Do you understand the difference? One's a nature. One's a list. Did I write a blog like that? Something? Yeah, I understand. But we like, we like the list, Right? We like the list because we're the ones who get to put stuff on the list and then cross it off. Okay, teacher comes up to you and says, hey, you can make your own test. History. Just pick five questions and then you can answer them yourself. I kind of want an A, so all right. I'm going to pick five things I know answers to. I get 100 every time. Right? Are we ever going to put stuff on there that we don't know? Nope. Are we ever going to put stuff on the list of to-dos to be righteous before God that we know we're not going to do? Nope. Flip the tables, though. What if all of a sudden we say, okay, let's abandon that approach because that's rigged. Let's go to the Bible and see what the Bible has to say, and let's see what the Holy Spirit puts on our list. And it looks totally different. You're like, oh, no. But an obedient, humble heart says, 
I don't want a rigged system. I want whatever God wants. Right? And even when I know I can't cross off that line, it just reminds me that I'm wretched, that I'm weak without Him, that He's going to have to work this thing, and He promises to work out this thing in my life, etc., etc. That's the difference. One's a person making lists, religious. One is working on a root system, a heart issue. These are conditions. Again, not just descriptions of a list of sins a person has committed. You may be saying, I hope not, why are you splitting hairs this way? Because it really matters that you understand the distinctions here. It really, really matters. You won't understand the deception of sin until you understand the baseline issue with sin itself, the nature of sin. God hates sin. We are born sinners. Go to Ephesians 2, verse 1. Ephesians 2, verse 1. Man, I'm going to be getting so many attacks. <sighs> Wish me luck. You can't teach this kind of a series and not be assaulted. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And Ephesians 2, 1, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, we were by nature, you see it? By nature, children of wrath. Sinners, in other words, even as the rest. We were born this way. But what if we didn't even do anything? You were born a sinner. And therefore, you walked that way as a habit. Does this formative passage of Holy Scripture in context say that we did anything or committed any sin on purpose or even refer to specific personal sins? No, it says we walked as a result of being a sinner, being by nature children of wrath. I mean, in other words, we just bore fruit after our own nature. Our sin nature. So the potentiality, in other words was always there when you were born. It was just there, ready to go. <laughs> you know, first time you didn't get your rattle back, you screamed. First time mom puts the plum, plum Gerber food on there, you go like this, whoosh, and you go, and they put it back and you're like, this is a fun game. <laughs> yeah, we're born to be that way. Ephesians 2 deals with the very nature of sin as it has corrupted and polluted every person ever born. This is the viewpoint that we are going to be posturing our study titled The Deceitfulness of Sin. Before we close, I want you to all do the best you can at this juncture. 
I'll do the best I can as your teacher. Personify sin. And I hope you know what I mean by personify. Almost give sin a type of personality. Let it take on a personality. Because it's the easiest way, in my opinion, to think about sin. Because it moves, it influences, it's kind of like a person. So personify sin uh, in such a way that it takes on its own character and nature. Because that's how the Bible treats it. As a true enemy of God. Here on the board. Sin. It is like a disease that every man is born with, infected by. It permeates every cell of our body from birth. It exists in this world, even outside of our bodies, infecting nature also. It is, therefore, the thing that causes persistent tension between God and His creation. And honestly, the easiest way to conceptualize this is go back to the garden. That's why I love the book of Genesis so much. Go back to the garden and look at what it was like before. And even imagine, you know, what was it like before? And then what happened? The relationship got broken because we disobeyed. Again, sin is like a disease that every man is born with, infected by. It permeates every cell of our body from birth. It exists in this world, even outside of our bodies, infecting nature also. It is therefore the thing that causes persistent tension between God and His creation. Again, this is the viewpoint I want you to garner your perspective from in this series. I don't want you to think or to use some limited definition that most religious institutions like to use, you know, pointing to personal activities only, like personal sins. That's not the only part of sin, but that's exactly what Satan wants. Because if you, only, if you pigeonhole sin like that, there's a whole lot of room for it to function on the outside of that thing. And you don't think it's sin because you're only paying attention to this little circle in the middle. And it's out here doing whatever it wants, wreaking havoc in your life, in the lives of others. It's doing whatever it wants because you refuse to identify it for what it actually is. And then here, lo and behold, the word, the light of truth goes like this. Light switch over here. Boom. The whole thing's lit up. Sin's like, oh, crap. Now we're in trouble. That's why I'm going to get tortured. You know that, right? And you're all going to get tortured, so hey, giddy up. You learn the truth, you expose, read Ephesians 5 when you go. We're supposed to expose the deeds of darkness. We're supposed to call them out, read it when you go home, Ephesians 5. We want to know it all, see it all as truth. So I don't want you to use the limited definition that most religious institutions like to use, for that is exactly what Satan wants. If we only think of sin in a limited way, we actually miss the mark, which by definition, we're sinning. In other words, if you reject what I'm trying to teach you right now, you're sinning. Say, no, I like the, I like the, the little limited version. I prefer the, no, that's a sin, because you're missing the mark. The light of truth says it's the whole thing, but I only like this one because then I can control it, you see. Well, you're sinning. If you're rejecting the truth, you're sinning. You're missing the mark. Remember, Satan is the father of lies. 
the great deceiver. His agency is sin itself. That is their relationship. And I think I've got to end here because we're out of time. God's intended relationship with man is righteous conformity to his will. God's intended relationship with man is righteous conformity to his will. Satan is the exact opposite, which is the nature of sin. Again, God's intended relationship with man is righteous conformity to his will. Satan's intended relationship is the exact opposite, which is the nature of sin. I have to stop. A lot to chew on? Good stuff. It's going to make us all see things uh, maybe we've never seen before in our own lives and consider um, sin in a whole new light. So this is good stuff. I'm just warning you. This is heavy stuff. This is, this, is, this is what our enemies do not want us to see. This is like looking behind the curtain. The Wizard of Oz. Roar! Right? Scary, scary. Big green face, right? That's sin. You know, religion says, I can fight the devil. You know, I can fight the, the green face. And the light turns on. You look behind the curtain and, and, and there's sin. So I'm just, I'm just warning you. I'm just warning you. Keep a lookout. You just laugh. You learn to laugh about it because it's almost, it's like a joke. You can see it coming. So just um, be warned, okay? I love you. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time spent learning your word. Thank you for turning on the lights in our souls regarding the very nature of sin itself, Father. May we be... Uh, may we uh, reject any previous uh, religion or religious thoughts about sin and accept the truth about it so that we might be uh, continuously sanctified in said truth. Father, we're so grateful. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned this morning out to a lost and deceived world, Father. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.